Welcome to Fritankes pod, Professor David Christian. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, your book, uh, the English title is Our, um, Origin Story. In Swedish it's called Berättelsen om allt, 13,8 miljarders års historia. What is that kind? What kind of book is this? Well, I, I I increasingly think of it as the attempt to do what traditional origin stories did, both sort of indigenous origin stories, but also the origin stories embedded in all the great religious traditions. That is to to sort of distill all of the best knowledge of our world into forms that are engaging and that can be taught, that can be made available to ordinary people, not just to researchers, but to do it using the best scientific evidence we have today. And I think, in a sense, this is what all origin stories did. Indigenous stories, they assembled the best knowledge of that world, and a lot of that knowledge was actually scientific in some sense. It was empirical, it was about migrations, about plants, about astronomy. Mm. So we're trying to do the same thing but for our 21st century world. You consider it an enlightenment project, right? In what sense? I think that's one way of thinking about it, because I think the project, the idea of doing that, goes back at least to the enlightenment. Um, But my own understanding of this is that uh, if you look at some of the great system builders of the uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, this is what they were involved in. Uh They were trying to assemble a sort of total vision of reality based on reason, evidence, and science um, that looks very like a traditional origin story. The the trouble was the science wasn't quite good enough. And so in the 19th century, that project was abandoned. The way I, I think of this is a problem with the amount of information, the number of pixels to build the picture. So in the 19th century... There just wasn't enough good science to tell a rigorous story, and that meant the stories became ideological. Mm. The ideas of the system builders, you know, replaced hard data. So you end up with social Darwinism, you end up with Marxism uh, calling itself science. Whereas a century later, after a century of research within the silos of modern disciplines, fantastically successful research in Mm. silo after silo, we now have so much information that I think we can construct a much more rigorous story that's much less vulnerable to ideological thinking. Mm. I see what you mean. And you also mentioned earlier that you think that the 20th century started to divide the sciences into specialists, specialist fields that do not interact with each other. Yes, and in a very powerful way. I think this is, I'm not completely confident of this interpretation of, Mm -hmm. of 20th century intellectual world, but it's certainly one way of thinking about it, that in the late 19th century is when the specialist disciplines really appeared, right in every country in the world, and right across the gamut from cosmology to quantum physics to geology to to, to human history. And the strategy was to know the world by breaking it up into manageable chunks. Now, we're so used to that world, all of us, we live in it, that it's, it's easy to forget that this is a very recent world, that for most of human history, people have lived within knowledge worlds that were sort of total, 
that included universal stories. Newton lived in such a world, and the story yeah. was the Christian story, yeah. and his science is embedded in that universal story. So living in this kind of fragmented universe is a very new experience, and many people think it's just the modern condition. I increasingly suspect that a better metaphor is to think of it of modernity as a sort of building site. What was happening is we're building a fantastically complex modern origin story, and it's taken a long, long time. But we're now ready to start looking for the unity in that story. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this, <clears throat> this is not only a book. It's a, it's, it's a much bigger project, actually, and you call it uh, the Big History Project. Yeah. And you do this with Bill Gates. Can you tell us a little bit about how this happened, how this came about? Well, I mean, Big History itself... There's quite a lot of people doing it, so I can only tell you about my own yeah. entree to it. It really began as, as a Russian historian. You began got, as a Russian historian. I began as yeah. a Russian historian, and I was very happy as a Russian historian. I still love Russian history. I'm fascinated by it. But I became increasingly fascinated by the idea that it's that to teach the history of nations, which is what we still conventionally do, and I was doing as a Russian historian, mm -hmm. Is, is, is kind of dangerous in a world with nuclear weapons and global problems. So we need to teach the history of humanity. And a new nationalist uh, attitude exactly. sweeping over the world. Exactly. Mm. So I uh, felt in a world with nuclear weapons, this, this is dangerous. And it, the history profession is still to a remarkable degree dominated by national stories. But there's a human story as well. And we've not done the work of constructing that story and creating a kind of epic, interesting, mm. engaging story that is for the whole of humanity. And I think we need to do that mm. to create a sense of identity with humanity as a whole. So, but as soon as I started thinking that, I thought, how would you teach the history of humanity? And I thought, um, you'd have to begin 200,000 years ago. So you'd have to talk seriously about the Paleolithic. And then I thought, no, but you'll also have to talk about evolution. Mm -hmm. So I thought, now I'm going beyond history into biology. And then I thought, but I'll also have to talk about the evolution of the biosphere and how the planet formed and how... Mm -hmm. So back and back and back until I realized what I was thinking about was a history of everything. Mm -hmm. And it was really... Uh, my wife, Chadi, who's a storyteller, who sort of said to me, you know what you're doing. You're, you're, you're telling an origin story. Yeah. And I hadn't thought of it before. But the, the Big History Project, um, it, what, what is called the Big History Project, is a free online syllabus that tells this story that's funded by Bill Gates and that's available for high schools. Mm. And it's completely free. It's in English, of course, although eventually I really hope we can translate it into many other languages. And it's being taught in about at least 1,500 schools, mostly in the U.S. and Australia, some in the Netherlands, um, at least one I know of in Sweden, some in Korea, some in other countries. Can anyone log into this website? Anyone can log into it. It's completely free. And this is... This is um, This is Bill Gates' commitment that, mm. that the syllabus would be available for free for anyone. You'll, ha you'll have to give an ID and a password, but anyone can log in. Mm. Anyone can use those materials in any way they want. But what's marvelous for me is that I think this is a story that needs to be taught in high schools and can create for young people a sense that modern knowledge 
is not just a series of windows on reality, but there is a coherence to it all. Mm -hmm. And that's something that existing educational syllabi don't teach anywhere in the world. Mm. Uh, We're going to talk more about the story itself, but first you have to tell us how how you came in contact with Bill Gates. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it's a nice story. Uh, uh, Apparently, um, when Bill Gates ceased to be full-time CEO of Microsoft in about 2007, mm. uh, 2000, early 2008, I think. He, uh, he's a voracious reader, and, but he also loves online lectures. Mm. And I had recorded a set of 48 half-hour lectures on big history uh, for the teaching company in the U.S., and he was working his way through the teaching company catalog. And he came to this, these lectures on big history, and he thought, I'll try them. As he disarmingly said to me, the thing is, David, I could afford to buy these things. Some people can't. So anyway, he, he, he bought yeah. the lectures, he worked his way, and he loved them. And he watched them on his uh, exercise bicycle, apparently. Okay. So I was in San Diego at the time, teaching at San Diego State University. Mm-hmm. And so I got a phone call in my office on, on, a, on, a, on a Monday, I think it was. And I was in a foul mood because I had to do some administrative work. And so this this very nice woman's voice says, is that Professor Christian? I said, yes, yes, what do you want? (laughs) I was very rude, actually, when I think about it. And she said, oh, is this a bad time to call? I said, no, 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 what do you you want? And then she said, oh, well, I can call back later. I'm actually calling from Mr. Bill Gates' office. So suddenly I got interested. And then she said, "Um, you may not know this, but Mr. Bill Gates is a a great fan of your work because he'd just done the course. Um, and she said he's coming down to San Diego. It turns out he came down to meet Craig Ventner. Yeah, Craig Ventner, yeah. yeah, yeah, who, yeah. Who, yeah. Who, who was the person who, you know, one of the two teams that deciphered the human, yeah, human genome. Yeah. We published his book. Right? So we had him here, actually, a few years ago, yeah. So <laughs> she said, so Bill Gates is coming down to San Diego, and if you can find some time in your busy schedule to meet Mr. Gates, that would be a good thing. So I'm very proud of the fact that I got the answer right. And I said, yes, I think I can find some time in my busy schedule. So anyway, I met him at a, at a hotel in, in, in San Diego, and uh, he was absolutely delightful. And we chatted about big history. And then at the end of the conversation, he said, look, so here's a proposal. And it was, again, very courteous. It was, um, if you're interested, he said, I would like to fund the building of a free online course in big history. He's very interested in online education. And I, of course, thought that was wonderful because I wanted to teach big history in schools. But at the time, I had no idea how to do this. So that was really the start of the big history project. And the project was launched in 2011. Mm. And we began with a number of um, very adventurous pioneering schools, including Bill Gates' own school in, in Seattle and two in, two in Australia, and schools willing to try out this new project. But now, as I say, it's probably something like 1,500 schools. I mean, frankly, I, I'm losing track of the yeah. number of schools teaching this. But who built the actual web project? Well, it was built, it's built, um, it's based in Seattle, mm-hmm. the project, uh, I was very much involved in creating the basic structures in the first year or two. Um, the, 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 but the, the funding went mainly towards um, 
uh, first a, a consultancy that put together the basic web, website, and now to people in a company that Bill Gates runs who, who are maintaining the Big History Project and, and doing a superb job of looking after teachers, maintaining the website and so on. Mm. Um, so I've not been directly involved in the details for several years. And in fact, now what we're doing at Macquarie University in Sydney is building our own online course uh-huh. because I think there's now room for slight variations. Mm. And we're building a course that's tweaked for Australian teachers and students and eventually we would like to start building courses that can be tweaked for different environments for example I taught in Korea and you know my Korean students noticed that there were no pictures of Korea and that can make a difference Mm. it it can mean that big history looks like an American thing Mm. rather than a human thing Mm. so That's what we'd like to do. And we're also building a primary school version because I've talked to so many primary school teachers who've said, I'd love to teach this in primary school. Yeah, I think that's completely the right way to go because in that age, the kids, what what age are they in primary school? Well, we're thinking of... Uh, the syllabus we're building is for kids aged 8 to 11. Yeah, exactly. Really. But of course, that's when they start to ask questions. Absolutely. My eight-year-old kid starts to ask questions like, how can the universe be infinite, for example? Exactly. There must be something beyond that and so on. That's when they start to ask questions. And, and, and big history, look, it's, it's a pioneering project. So the, the, the story that I tell or that other people tell at the moment, it's certainly not a finished product. Mm. Uh, it's an evolving thing. But one of the wonderful things about it is not necessarily what it says about the universe, but the wonderful deep questions it raises about the universe. And and we know that um, kids, yeah, 8 to 11, can, can get very interested mm-hmm. in very deep metaphysical and philosophical problems. Yeah. And I think big history can steer them along interesting ways of thinking. Do you think this kind of narrative, this story, uh, can actual, actually create meaning for people, existential meaning? I'm absolutely convinced it can create meaning for people. Uh, but I've, al- I've also learned over the years that not everyone sees it that way. Mm. So persuading people that it creates meaning is a different thing. Um, one of the ways I find helpful... In thinking about the meaning, it's going back to the idea of origin stories, that all origin stories, you can think of them as maps. Mm. They, they map you. They tell you what is around you, what communities, what animals, what plants, what the geology, what the geography is, what the astronomy is, what universe you belong to. Mm. So for me, those maps themselves are full of meaning because they tell me what it is I'm part of. And they can also tell me what I am. They can tell me about my own biology, my own evolution. So I find the maps themselves deeply meaningful, and there's a deeper sense in which they're meaningful, that all living things actually map their environments. And I think this is the very source of meaning, that living things, unlike non-living things, are trying to achieve things, Uh, they're trying to survive and they're trying to reproduce. And in order to do that, they need information about their environments. They need to map their environment. Even a bacterium can say, alkali to the right, acid to the left, let's go left, or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So that, that mapping 
is something all living things do. Now, we humans do it with a kind of elaboration and sophistication uh, that is absolutely unmatched amongst other organisms, partly because we construct these maps together. But they remain meaningful in the way they're meaningful for a bacteria. But they're so elaborate that it's often easy to forget that there's a purpose behind these maps. But if you think of science, say like the science of climate change, Mm. this is very sophisticated mapping. It's full of meaning in the crudest possible sense that if we get that wrong, then my grandchildren will suffer. So that's meaning. But I, I sometimes think that what is missing in the scientific maps of reality is the warmth that you find in deistic traditions, because deistic but religious traditions... But they can be very cruel as well. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> I agree. I'm, I've, I've just been reading Dante's Inferno. Yeah, Inferno, exactly. and, and he talks about how, how uh, uh, one or two points, about the cleverness of God's justice, that he yeah. finds these horrible tortures mm. that are, you know, that, 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 that correlate precisely to the sin. No, I agree. But nevertheless, there's a sense of belonging to something with purpose, with with warmth. It could be cruelty as well. Whereas a scientific origin story puts you in a universe that just is. The Mm. universe has no meaning. The Mm. meaning comes from living organisms. And all I can say is that many people seem to find that cold and And lacking in meaning. Frightening, probably. And I think many scientists, too, believe it's their job to just map in a cold, that as soon as they get too involved in questions of meaning, they may warp their maps. Now, methodologically, that's smart. Mm. But politically, frankly, it's dumb. Mm. Because if science can't persuade large numbers of people that the stories it tells are meaningful, then you end up in a world where there's the sort of skepticism about science we see today yeah and i think that's a very dangerous world because there are things urgent messages that science has for us yeah no but i completely agree with that but i'm thinking also that these kinds of scientific stories can create existential meaning in the sense that it gives answers to where do we come from where are we heading yeah uh why are we here in 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 a sense in one way at least and um, do, do you think that this kind of existential meaning could, scientific existential meaning could replace the, the theological stories that has been around for so many hundreds of years? I, I, think, I think eventually it'll have to. Mm. And I suspect this was true of all origin stories. Whenever origin stories change, that the new origin story... How can I put it? It it had the feeling of truth. And today, it's science that has the feeling of truth. Mm. In their day, every origin story felt like truth. Mm. Um, And we need truth. We need to be able to rely, to trust the knowledge we have. So I think science will be able to do many of the things that traditional religions have done. Um, and we need to remember that many, some traditional religions were not deistic. 
Mm. Uh, they were, well, I mean, Greek science, for example. There were lots of gods, but they were not the drivers of the universe. They were kind of irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Buddhism, too, puts you in a universe that has no purpose Mm. and leaves you with the humanistic challenge of finding meaning. And I think that's that's the modern origin story has that same quality Mm. of asking you to find meaning rather than allowing you to say, oh, well, I will find meaning somewhere in the universe. Um, but still there are, there are mysteries in the scientific story, like, for example, how, how did consciousness evolve, yeah. for example? What, what do you think about that kind of hard question? How did it evolve? Look, I, I, I have no idea. No, no. <laughs> but, but I think one of the interesting things about the idea of a scientific origin story is that Some traditional origin stories have a quality of dogmatism, Mm. a a sort of rigidity. And one of the powerful things about modern science is that at its best, it's not dogmatic. Mm. It's willing to say things like, this question I can answer, this question I can answer, this one I can't. Mm. So we can identify some of the big areas where modern science runs out of answers. And one is, what was there before the Big Bang? Yeah. There's lots of speculation, but I think most cosmologists would admit that it's speculative. Yeah. Um, what was what was con- what is consciousness? Yeah. How, how did, does it arise? How did life arise? And how does life yeah. arise is certainly one of them. Those yeah. are probably the three big areas. But do you think at least the last two, life and consciousness, do you think they will be solved by a scientific explanation? For what it's worth, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, I I. Um, I think there's a very good uh, certainly the the origins of life is strangely may even be maybe easier than the question of consciousness Mm. because I think we have a pretty good idea of what life is like at least on this earth Uh, we don't have a more general definition that would cover all possible forms of life and uh, we've made huge progress uh, in, in understanding possible pathways from rich chemistry to living organisms. Mm. Consciousness, I think the problem is that even defining the problem itself, uh, we're still wrestling with that. Uh, It's clearly got something to do with the functioning of the brain. Mm. (laughs) And so it's very tempting to think that consciousness is something that is apparent in all organisms with quite well-developed neurological systems to some degree. But uh, I'm not sure we've got much further than that. And as for the origins of the universe, I, in my own book, I, I, I fall back on... Um, I think it's one of those areas where all origin stories break down. Yeah. Because if you look at any origin story right at the beginning, you'll find someone's trying to play a conjuring trick on you. So, so in the beginning, there was nothing, and God made. Mm. A smart kid will immediately say, whoa, slow down. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Who yeah. made God? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's true of many yeah. Many origin stories. And then they, they say, well, God is eternal. And then the kid says, well, then the universe could be eternal as right. well. Or, or, you know, many big bangs and so on. So either, either pro- the idea of a beginning is problematic. Yeah. The idea of eternity is problematic. Both of them are problematic. Yeah. So Terry Pratchett, the English novelist, um, has a wonderful phrase that I use, which was, uh, at the moment, our best understanding is that um, uh, in the beginning there was nothing which exploded. Mm. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. That's as well as we can do at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By the way, you know, probably know that the Big Bang theory is it's actually one very rare example there an atheistic attitude stood in the way for accepting a new theory. I'm thinking, because we all have examples where religion has stood in the way for accepting science, but in this case, Fred Hoyle, you know, the British astronomer, he never accepted the Big Bang Theory. He said, that's just a religious crap. They're trying to get a, a sort of starting point, yes. a creation, uh, university. He didn't accept the theory at all. And the fact that um, of he's the real pioneer, Georges Lemaitre, was, was a Catholic a, priest. Yeah, Jesuit priest. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and that the story is sort of aligned with deistic creation yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. Now, that's actually. a nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. But, um, okay, going back to your book a little bit, can you, can you tell us sort of briefly what you are mapping out in your, in your book, in your origin story? But if I can go back a step to when I began to try to teach this, I, I really didn't know what I was doing, and I, I was not aware of any good models. H.G. Wells had tried to do something mm. very similar, but the science wasn't good enough. So the story, it didn't even have any dates for things before about 3,000 years ago. So when I began, I, I got lecturers from different departments to give lectures, and they didn't really fit together. Mm. Um, because each of them brought their jargon, the language of that discipline, the methods of that discipline. So it was a real illustration of the nature of this fragmented intellectual world that we've lived in for a century. But what was wonderful was that over several years, I listened to all these lectures, and gradually a more coherent story began to emerge. And I was not the only one doing this. There were the other people have been trying to sort of put this story together. And the best storyline that I know of is a storyline about increasing complexity, that the early universe was actually very simple. You can think of a sort of thin mist of hydrogen and helium atoms, mm. very homogeneous, not much structure. And then, so, so there you have a wonderful question. How, step by step, did more complex things appear in this universe? And the, 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 the problem's even more interesting given what we know about entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, that there are fundamental processes in the universe that tend to break down anything with structure or pattern. So how is it possible? And the story as I tell it now is really a story of a series of thresholds so that in particular parts of the universe where perfect conditions appeared... Um, existing things will rearrange to form more complex things. So that's true of the creation of stars. And then inside dying stars, new elements were created. Uh, a universe with 92 rather than two elements, you can create rocks and you can create water and you can create planets. Mm. And the surface of planets, you have a fantastically complex environment. You've got air, you've got liquid, you've got solids, you've got flows of energy, you've got really rich chemistry to take you to threshold five, mm. which is the origins of life. And then once you've got life, you've got mechanisms that seem to actively increase complexity. And I'm talking, of course, about evolution. Mm. And then you can tell the story of the evolution of our biosphere up to the emergence of human beings. And one of the great questions, of course, is how significant is our own species in this origin story? Mm. And I'm increasingly persuaded that we're very significant indeed, uh, at least on this planet. 
um, in the sense that we're the first species in four billion years that is so powerful that we're beginning to dominate change on the whole planet. And so that raises the wonderful question, what is it that makes us humans so different? Mm. And I actually think you can see answers to that question on the large scale, the big history. And there may be quite simple answers that we can exchange information in a way that no other species can. And that means we can accumulate information from generation to generation. So I, in my lifetime, may add a new bit of information. It'll get stored in the collective memory. And then generation from generation, and environment from environment, humans accumulate more information until today we have so much information that we dominate the biosphere. So it's a story that begins with a very simple early universe and builds step by step or threshold by threshold in the way I tell it to the fantastically complex world we live in today and to this pivotal moment in which something is happening that may be significant on galactic scales. In other words, here we have a planet, a rich planet that's in which life has evolved, in which one of those life forms is beginning to manage the planet. Now, we're not doing it very well so far, so our task is to learn very quickly mm. how to manage an entire planet. And as far as we know... Nothing like this is happening, certainly in our part of the galaxy. So this is pretty damn significant. Mm. It means the emergence of our species is significant for the history of planet Earth. Mm. But that, of course, you can't see if you adopt the siloized vision of modern knowledge. You need a wide-angle lens that allows you to include both human history and the history of the biosphere and to bring them together. Do you think of the development of the universe also as an evolutionary process in some way? Yeah, I, I think that's one of these wonderful questions that big history puts on an agenda. Yeah. So one of the questions is, um, we, we see this process of increasing complexity in particular environments in the universe. And now most of the universe remains very simple. So it's mm. not that the whole universe is getting more complex, really, but... Complexity is emerging in some pockets. So the the question, why? Is there some sort of driver of increasing complexity? Or is this largely a sort of statistical process? Mm. If you have a universe that has a few simple rules Mm. and, you know, change keeps happening, um, statistically it's likely that some of those changes will be really weird. Mm. They'll be very different from change early on. Is that? the source of complexity or are there stronger drivers of complexity once you get life we know there are stronger drivers Mm. in life itself there's the process of evolution natural by natural selection but it's also it needs an external power which is the energy from the sun obviously oh yes life i mean so so energy flows are crucial at all of these thresholds and that again is one of the great questions that big history raises are there similarities across all these thresholds? Mm. And I think the answer is yes, there mm. are significant similarities. One of them is that every time you see one of these thresholds, you can identify new flows of energy. So with stars, it's fusion mm. from the center of a star. With element formation, it's the sort of staggering energy flows at the end of the life of a star or in supernovas. In human history... 
It's the energy that comes from accumulating technological information about how to control the energy flows on Earth. Through agriculture, we learn to control flows of photosynthetic energy mm-hmm. more and more powerfully. And then with fossil fuels, of course, we're controlling energy that was accumulated over 300 yeah. million years. But I, I, I should add one more thing, that these thresholds that I talk about... I'm not making scientific claims about them. This Mm. is a storyteller's device. Mm. There are many, many examples of emergent things in the universe. I focus on eight because that works pretty well for a storyteller. Mm. But I'm not, you know, I'm not saying these are necessarily the most important. No, that's what you mean. Yeah. But uh, tell me, uh, in America especially, have you had a a lot of criticism from, like, evolution deniers and so on? Yes, and I taught big history in San Diego for about six years. And I got quite a few students who Mm. would say to me, I'm I'm sorry, uh, I don't think I can take this course Mm -hmm. because I'm a Christian. I'd say that shouldn't be a problem. Many (laughs) scientists are Christian. And then they would say, well, I, I actually believe that evolution is nonsense, mm. and that the universe was created 6,000 years ago. So very often I would say to them, um, my job as a teacher is not to tell you what to believe. What I can do is help you understand a very powerful story about today's world. And it's a story that is powerful enough and widespread enough that you probably need to know it. And very often that worked. Yeah. yeah. And I'd say, look, if you, if you want to attack evolution... You know, the first step is to read Darwin yeah, and exactly. learn what he said and learn. And I can help you there. Because uh, I think you're very right that these evolution deniers very often have misunderstood evolution. Also. Oh, they very often have. For can, example, yes. they think evolution is a random process. And I mean, natural selection is not at all random. It's yeah. the opposite of random. Of course, you need... The variation random. may be Yeah, random, the variation the selection isn't. Yeah. Exactly. And it is the selection yeah. process that is... The, in, in a sense, well, you need both, obviously, yeah. but, but still the natural selection process is not random. And, and the reason they're, they're, they misunderstand it is partly because of the textbook market in the yeah. States. Yeah. If you want to write a textbook on biology, the biggest markets are Texas and California. Yeah. And in, in both those markets, it, you're going to sell more textbooks if you don't spend too much time talking about evolution and natural selection, Mm. but you talk about other aspects of biology. Mm. So I remember one student, I was talking about Darwin and the evidence for Darwinism, and I was trying to spell out the Darwinist argument step by step, because it's very logical. Mm. And this this young student was sitting at the back of the class rolling his eyeballs, and I said, do you have a problem with this? And he says, excuse me, Professor, but I don't understand why people like you Tell us this nonsense. And I said, so, so what, what, why, why do you have a problem with it? He said, because I know, and I think you know, Professor, that a cat cannot turn into a dog. <laughs> so I then breathed deeply and went back yeah, and repeated yeah. what I'd already said yeah. in the lectures. I said, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And you were born with a set of genes which I'm afraid, for better or worse, you're not going to change. You're stuck with those genes. Mm. But we're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about a statistical process. Mm. I said, look around the room. You know, you could, people of different height. If we'd been here a century ago, I guarantee the average height would have been lower than it is today. Mm. So that's the sort of change we're talking about. And finally, he said, 
oh, yeah, that sort of makes sense. So there is a lot of crude misunderstanding. And the crude misunderstanding comes in the States, I think, because a lot of teachers don't want to face angry parents at student teacher nights. So even biology, biology teachers... It's much easier to say, look, here's a theory that many people accept, but not everyone accepts it. Um, and this is Darwin's theory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I sometimes use the metaphor of having, when I discuss with evolutionaries, uh, when they say that, you know, humans are so complex, they couldn't come, come about by just random processes. And they say, it's like if you had... Um, Uh, 20 dices in your hand, how likely is it that you would get all sixes, for example, yeah. when you throw them? And of course, that's extremely unlikely. You would probably have to go on for thousands of years to get that. But I, I say to them, that's not how evolution exactly. works. It works like this. You throw these 20 dices, and you maybe get three sixes. You put them aside, and then you have 17 left, and you yeah. throw them, and you get two sixes, and you put them aside. If you do that, you will get 26s after maybe 30. Pretty throws. rapidly. Well, yeah, pretty yep. rapidly. I've seen the same calculations for monkeys typing Shakespeare. You know, <laughs> if, it, if every time they type in a, a letter yeah. that is correct and you lock it in, yeah. then, you know, they'll type the whole works of Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. It won't take that long. No, exactly. And Fred, I think Fred Hoyle missed this because really? he, uh, he has a famous metaphor about... Um, uh, What what is the likelihood of uh, of if if a hurricane f- uh, hits a junkyard yeah. full of all the pieces of a Boeing seven four seven? What are the chances of getting a Boeing seven four seven? And I think that's that was a piece of misleading polemics. Yeah. Um, that's a creationist argument, normally. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure why Fred Hoyle was, was messing <laughs> no, around with arguments like that, but he was a curmudgeon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, you, you have a very good metaphor in your book as well. If you say, if you take these 13 billion years to be 13 years instead, you have to help me out because I don't remember, but it's just six seconds ago when, what was happening six seconds ago? Uh, the fossil fuels revolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the industrial revolution, revolution yeah. so to speak. That's six seconds ago on this 13 year scale yeah. that's really when you when you hear that it's really um, it's mind blowing it is mind blowing and i think the fact that most of us are not familiar with those time scales yeah. is again a, a problem to do with the siloization of education mm. if we think of history as being basically interested in the last few hundred years maybe you're interested in rome as well rome and greece mm. Um, then there are things you can't see, uh, including things like that. You can't see them unless you make the effort to compare the timescales of human history with those of geological history and geological time. And this is immensely important, because what it means is that the trajectory of our species on this planet is almost as explosive as the arrival of an asteroid. Uh, we know that an asteroid arrived 65 million years ago and transformed the history of yeah. the biosphere largely by wiping out the, the large dinosaurs. Mm. Um, now, that, ha- the, that was except, almost instantaneous. Yeah, but except two, the birds. Except the birds. That's why I said the large dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, human history took 200,000 years. But for a geologist, the difference between five minutes and 200,000 years isn't really that 
great. No, no, that's true. <laughs> no, so we are we are, our, our impact on the biosphere is explosive. Yeah. So so let me ask you a last question. I mean, this story. How do you think it will continue? I mean, we know that the sun will die, uh, but that's very far away. But before that, what will happen, do you think? Do you think we will explore other planets and live on other planets, for example? Well, once again, I think, you know, rather than answering your question, I'd I'd like to say this is one of the wonderful reasons for teaching big history is that it raises these questions. Once you've taught a big history course, you have to think about the future. And so I began giving lectures on the future, which is not a not a thing historians normally do. And in fact, uh, the the historiographer Collingwood once said, if you see a historian who starts talking about the future, you know that something has gone seriously wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, as a teacher, we couldn't avoid it. So I realized very soon that there are different scales and they work in different ways. And there's the scale of the near future, let's say 50 to 100 years. That's interesting because my grandchildren and great-grandchildren... So there's a warm meaning to Mm. that scale. Also, what we do today will affect it. And we have a sporting chance of guessing some of the changes that are likely. Then there's a scale of, let's say, a few thousand years. Now, that suddenly the possibilities multiply so fast that there's very, very little we can say with any confidence... And then finally, there's the scale of millions of years and the scale of the universe itself. And strangely, we can say more at that scale because we're talking about simpler processes. So uh, cosmologists are pretty confident they can say something about the end of the universe. Mm. They can say something about the end of our sun, the end of our planet. But that's very far away. Your question really lies in that middle zone. So we do know that Artificial intelligence is increasing in leaps and bounds. We do know that we have the capacity to travel to other planets Mm. because we've already done it. So Mm. I think it's very likely that artificial intelligence will increase, that that our bodies will be increasingly integrated with machines Mm. that will start messing with the genome. And also that uh, we will start, uh, there will be colonies on other planets within the next few hundred years. They may be mining colonies at first on asteroids or on moon, on, on, on the moon or Mars. So all of these things seem very likely at the moment, but they live in that kind of middle realm of the future where it's really hard to say anything with any confidence. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's helpful in thinking about the future to separate out those those three realms. But are you worried about artificial intelligence? Uh, yes, mm. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Partly because I've read a wonderful book by uh, a Swede, Nick, Nick Bostrom, yeah, yeah. who paints a terrifying picture yeah. super of uh, super intelligence. Mm. As I understand it, what he's talking about is the possibility that these machines, whether or not they have any consciousness, um, could suddenly take over the world, and we'll find ourselves being treated by machines we've created a bit the way we treat sheep or cattle. Mm. Uh, that is utterly terrifying, particularly if these entities that are that are controlling us are don't have consciousness. Mm. They're, they're, they're kind of mindless, algorithmic creatures. Mm. That's a terrifying scenario. And of course, we're already partly there. Mm. I mean, they're dominating. They have a huge role on financial markets. Yes. 
Um, True. And we're start- they're, they're beginning to affect elections, as we know. Yes, the number of uh, sort of bots yeah. on social media is huge. So. Yes. Now, that, this is an, an area we could talk about for a completely other <laughs> pod. So I think we should end here. Thank you so much, David Christian, for talking to me. Thank you very much indeed.